Welcome everyone to the Transformation Nurse Academy podcast. This is our weekly episode, Talk with Kevin, where we cover topics for all nursing fields with extra emphasis on emergency and critical nursing. Get ready for candid discussions that explore the vast landscape of nursing and beyond. Welcome everybody to the Transformation Podcast. My name is Kevin and I have the famous, I know you don't believe this, but Dr. Lisa Wolf. Can you introduce yourself, ma'am, and just tell us about who you are, where you've been? I got all my notes and stuff, but, and then what is your relationship to the Emergency Nurse Research Institute? Yeah, so I am Lisa Wolf. I am a emergency nurse of 20 something, something years. I have been a staff nurse. I've been an educator. I've been a manager, hated that. And now I'm a researcher. I'm the director of research for the Emergency Nurses Association, which is kind of my main gig. I'm also an associate professor of nursing at UMass Amherst out in lovely Western Massachusetts, where I live. You like Massachusetts? I love it. It is one of the best. It's the Finland of the United States. We got got universal health care. We got great education. We got... Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, Um, hold on. Let's back up here. So Massachusetts has universal health care. We have had universal health care since 1997. Shut up. No, we I haven't. I know great... that. Now yeah, I got to do that, research. Now I got to do that research. That is, for those of you out in TV land, that is Mitt Romney's doing. When Mitt oh. Romney, Senator Mitt Romney from Utah, was the governor of Massachusetts. Are you surprised by that? Well, I lived in Massachusetts at the time. So I was kind of like, our Republican governors tend to be right. very centrist, you right. know. Oh, all right. Because because we don't put up with that nonsense here. Yeah, I got um, you. But I'm yeah, surprised so, because I live in California, and guess what we don't have? Yeah, I know. I'm not trying to be political, but we have a Democratic supermajority, mm-hmm. and they still can't get it done. Well, we've had, I mean, God, I mean, everybody's has access to health care on the exchange, right, some exchange in some version or form since 1997. And that's been, you know, just to sort of bring that back to nursing, you know, that provides a floor, uh, like a medical floor that allows people to get care. And so our life expectancy, we were the only ones who went up in, you know, whatever. So I like that though. That's good. You know how much I pay a month in healthcare insurance for me and my family? How much? Are you sitting down? I am. $3,000 a month. Good God. That's That's right. Exorbitant. It is. That's crazy, right? Do you get that through your job? No, I have to pay that on my own. Oh, wow. Right. That's why I'm working. (laughs) That's why I'm up at five o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Right. Well, I think that's, you know, that's another piece of it, you know, just sort of structurally, when you tie people's health insurance to an employer, right, that becomes, you know, a discrete employer, that becomes really problematic for a lot of people. And it really discourages innovation. It discourages people starting businesses. It discourages all the things that people say they want. Yes. In an economy, right? If you, I, if, yeah. I agree because I'm passionate about this, but I don't know. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get you in trouble, but I do ask that question. I'm not a fan of them, but if you are, I understand. But like the American Nurses Association, all these big associations, not talking about the ENA, but talking about all these other nationwide ones, all the unions and stuff. How come they don't have a way that nurses can buy into health insurance more affordable and have it available all across the board? So it's not tied to our job. So no. nurses can do whatever they want. That's what well, I don't I get. I agree 100% that that so. would be, I mean, those organizations are big enough 
But here's, I had this really very recent, very interesting conversation about nursing organizations with somebody. And sort of the bottom line is that nursing organizations, like all other large entities, are inherently very conservative. You think so? I do. Even the ANA? Yeah. Because when you have a really broad constituency or membership, right, you've got people across the political spectrum. Right. And the challenge then is how do you do what's objectively good without pissing off half your membership, right? right, right? right. You feel like that's socialism, right? right? And those folks are really loud. And, you know, and I've encountered in my work at ENA, there's large swaths of the nursing, pop- nurses are people, right? And they right. kind of cover. What's really interesting, I think, is that a lot of the research work that I've been doing lately kind of points me to this thing, which is that nurses focus on the nurse-patient relationship, right? So anything that happens outside that relationship, they see as none of their concern. And this kind of comes from this great paper, highly recommend, Evelyn Barbee, B-A-R-B-E-E, 1993. She's an anthropologist, comes out of Boston College, and wrote a paper about racism in nursing specifically. And this idea applies, I think, to a lot of things, not just bias and racism and discrimination, but this idea that nursing as a discipline focuses on this very one-to-one relationship and discourages bigger thought, right? Like what you're talking about, like, why don't we organize? Why don't we provide our members with these important, what we already know are important benefits. We evidence suggests that people who have insurance get better care, right? So why would we not do that? So there's this conflict avoidance. There's this very heteronormativity, right? So like nobody wants to stick out, right? And this idea that the nurse-patient relationship is the only important relationship rather than the lateral professional relationships that we need to build, right? right? Does that make sense? No, it does. I talk about it all the time. I get in trouble because I teach too, just not as fancy as you, but I talk about conflict avoidance. And I don't, maybe I'm sexist, but, you know, nursing is dominated by females. Mm -hmm. But a lot of females that I've dealt with and saw, and I say observed, don't be mad at me, but I observed you creatures for the last 30 years. You don't like conflict. And I don't know why. Like, I'm not trying to cause trouble, but if people aren't doing what they need to do for us as a whole, then we can make things better. Why don't you stand up and talk? But because for women some aren't reason, allowed people... to be angry. Women aren't why allowed not? to be direct, right? Why this not? Is, this is a verse. This is a I like that if you're direct, I'd rather you be direct with me and tell me quit being an asshole than, you know, beat around the bush. Why not? Right? Why oh, can't absolutely. you be direct? But you're ignoring the cultural conditioning that women undergo, right? Which is to be nice and don't make anybody angry. And this is a version of the doctor nurse game, right? If you're old as I am. Right, I got you. Where you learned, like literally learned watching other nurses to be able to say things like, hey, I'm wondering if you might think about, you know, what if we, you know, what if you tried, what if you tried (laughs) this approach, medication, whatever. You know, what do you think that, you know, you might want to call your attending about this, right? And you have to make it think like it's their idea, right? Right, That kind of conditioning (laughs) is really, really strong, both in nursing and in women, right, in Mm -hmm. the United States. And you can't ignore that. You know, this is like oppressed group behavior in a big way, that sort of lateral violence. And to extend that, like we did this great study about 
bullying, this theoretical study about bullying, and we validated it with a study of post-traumatic stress disorder and secondary traumatic stress in emergency nursing. And I am like really coming to the conclusion that a lot of our behaviors, the kind of behaviors that you're describing are the result of unmanaged trauma, yeah, right? I, I so believe we, that. Yeah. I mean, we're in the ER. We are subject to the, like this tsunami of other people's pain and distress and whatever. And like that right. does stuff to you. Yeah. And so everybody kind of wants to stay under the radar and just kind of keep doing what they're doing and keep their peace and like chill and maintain and calling people out on their bullshit. It disrupts that. Yeah. Do, it becomes do you think really it makes, challenging. Do you think it brings up anxiety or angst to call somebody out? I mean, you think, like sure. you say, you say they stay in their place because they don't want to you know, make the waters ruffle. Like, is but it because it's a comfort zone? The boat. But I found out in this like study I did way back in like 2009, it was the study before my dissertation study. And it really became apparent that the social pressure, the culture of a given emergency department really affected how people communicated about patients, right? So think about when a new nurse comes on in your emergency department, right? And they come to either the charge nurse, they come to you and they're like, oh my God, I think this patient is really sick. And the first thing that everybody does is like, calm down, nobody right. runs here, <laughs> like get a grip, right? When in fact the patient might be really sick, but we right. teach new people to disregard right. those red flags because right. we don't run You don't want here, you to right? get excited. And right, don't get okay. excited. So that social pressure really, so the next time somebody who's really sick comes into that nurse's room, they're going to hesitate before right. they go and be like, hey, there's something, I need your help, right? And so we condition each other to do that. So the social pressure to conform to whatever the culture of the ER is really inhibits decision-making, right? Because the end result of a clinical decision is an act. It's right. not a thought. And so the challenge is to get those thoughts out of people's heads and into action. And if we teach them not to do that, then we can't be surprised when they don't do that. In fact, we get mad at them when they don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's gaslighting. It's like huge gaslighting. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I just had this happen because I left the bedside for four years because I needed a break, but I just went back. And then this last week, I won't tell you the doctor's name because I don't want to be in trouble, but we had a patient come in and she said the patient was hypokalemic and I looked in the labs and the potassium was like 5.3. I'm like, okay, but it's not that high. And she wanted to treat it. She wanted to give D50 and calcium chloride and insulin. I'm like, really? I said, and I did what you just did. Even though I'm not scared to confront doctors, I did what you did because I'm new again and I don't want to call trouble, but I walked up to her just like you did. And I said, you know, doctor, I'm not sure, but why are you treating potassium when it's only 5.3? I've never seen anybody treated like this because I don't want to cause trouble because I'm just back again. But she's like, well, just in case. And I said, just in case what? Well, you know, she is, she is a dialysis patient and her potassium might go up. I'm like, okay, but it isn't up. So I never heard of such a thing. But other nurses were like, oh, Kevin, you know, that's doctor so-and-so. Don't piss her off. I'm like, I don't give a shit. I said, but you're treating somebody inappropriately. That's not, it's our duty. We have an obligation to speak of. You can't just let people do whatever they want just because they're a doctor. So I get you. Even myself, I found myself trying not to be too confrontational because, you know, I don't want to rock the boat too soon because 
I do have a mouth on me. So. Right. So, I mean, you want to, like anybody who's listening to this, like you want to, <laughs> next time you get into an interaction where you're challenging somebody's decision or questioning somebody's decision, like pay attention to how you feel about that. Because we all like to think, oh, yeah, I'd speak up, right? But mm, no, not so much. Well, I mean, I'll speak up. I don't mind it. But I didn't want to rock the boat so soon because, you know, it is only day three back. <laughs> because, I'm you know, I do. What you see is what you get, right? Yeah. All right. So how did you become interested in emergency nursing and what has kept you engaged in this high stress field? Yeah. So when I was in nursing school, which was a second sort of go round for me. What does that mean? Second go round? Yeah. So I was I graduated from college with degrees in anthropology and English literature. Master (laughs) of fine arts. She's got a master of fine arts and creative writing. In and then writing. it says Amherst College Bachelors of Arts in Anthropology. Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> I thought I was, that was a spoof account, but I guess it's not, huh? It is not a spoof account. <laughs> I'm actually ridiculously overeducated. No, I um, love it. So what I found, having gone through six years of post high school education, was that I didn't really like working as an administrative assistant, which was about the only thing available to me at the time. And so I got a job in women's reproductive health in Boston, which was exciting when you're 22 or 23. And what I really found important was the nurses, right? So we were, I worked as a counselor, I worked as a recovery room nurse, you know, medical assistant at the time, right? So I was an OR medical assistant, I worked in the recovery room. And what really impressed me was these women who were coming to us seeking reproductive care, including abortion, the nurses met them where they were, right? They really walked them through a compassionate but solid decision-making process. They supported whatever their decision was. We went through the procedure with them. We recovered them. And the nurses were like clinically, relationally, you know, just, it was amazing to watch at this really pivotal moment in our patients' lives where they were for maybe for the first time regaining control over right. what was happening to them. Right, right. And I was like, I want to do that. So I applied to a bunch of nursing schools because I had all these degrees already. I applied to all these three-year NP programs, which were just starting up in the 90s. And right, right. Um, got, yeah, I got rejected from all of them because they took like, <laughs> I don't know, five students or whatever. So up the street- Do you think me, it was because you were a woman though? No, I think all, everybody applying for these programs was female. Oh, I got you. Everybody. Got you. And so I ended up working for a architecture firm in Boston as an administrative assistant, <laughs> and, but they paid me more and they built hospitals. And so oh. I found out like literally up the block from where I lived was a hospital-based school of nursing. And I'm like, I'll apply there. It's easy to get to, right? So I did. And so I spent two years in uh, St. Elizabeth's Hospital School of Nursing to be a midwife, actually, I really wanted to go into women's healthcare. And then I did my L&D rotation and realized that would be an incredibly bad decision for all. Why is that? Because I didn't have the patience. You mean you didn't have the patience? I did not have the patience to sit by somebody's bedside for eight hours while they labored. I would have gotten bored. (laughs) I would have been terrible for the patient, right? But you're good at OB, apparently. Well, I have have returned. You have have evolved. I have evolved full circle <laughs> back to OB and the ED. All right, all right. <laughs> yeah, so, but then I did an emergency department rotation in my senior semester. And I was like, this is it. This is the thing I want to do. And they were like, well, that was back in the day when you had to be 
in med surge and then go to ICU. And then oh, maybe yeah. if somebody died, you could get a job on nights in, in right. the ER. So I was like, all right, fine, whatever. So that's when I took the research job where that first paper came out of, mostly because my whole family was in New York. And I was like, what do you mean I have to work on Christmas? Like, what is that? Right. So I took a job that didn't make me work weekends or holidays or whatever. Right. So my first job in nursing was like ridiculously easy in that sense. But I learned a lot. I learned how to talk to patients a lot because when you do research, you spend a lot of time explaining stuff to patients, right. participants, subjects, whatever they are, you know, in their trajectory. But then I moved from Boston down to, so I was at Mass General. For my first job, I went to the Joslin, did a lot of work with diabetes and other kinds of endocrinology. Yeah, that you're a diabetic nurse at Joslin, right? Yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. good research stuff. Lots of fun. Learned a lot again. And then I moved back down to New York to start up the research arm, you know, kind of administrate the research arm at Columbia. And I just, you know, I was like, physicians who work in this type of research are not people people. You know, <laughs> like they're not. What do you people. mean they they just don't like to deal. They don't, they don't like, like to, to deal with people. with people. That's why they're doing yeah. research. Right? Yeah. So I was like, this isn't working for me. So I got a job <laughs> in the ICU at night in oh. a community hospital yeah. where there were no doctors. <laughs> it was amazing, right? Like in terms of clinical decision-making, like this was amazing. And it's so different the way it is. Nursing is now. Yeah. I mean, yes. literally there were no physicians in the hospital at night. Yeah. We ran our own codes. We did everything. People don't believe me when I tell them that. I feel like I'm living in the twilight zone. Don't be mad at me, but this is my feelings. I feel that we have dumbed down nursing over the last 20 years. When I first started, like you, we worked in ICU. There was hardly any doctors. We hardly had any RTs, if any. We did everything. We did everything on our own. Yeah. Now, I can't even give a breathing treatment in a damn ED. I got to call RT. It's very weird. Yeah. So, I mean, I went from the ICU to the ED, to the PACU, to the ED. I kind of bumped, bounced around that particular hospital, but really landed on the emergency department. And then I had the opportunity to be a manager, you know, on nights and then the educator. So, you know, that's kind of when I joined ENA because I was, this is 2004. I was like, I should be certified if I'm going to be an educator. And, and so from there, it's just been like all ED all the time. And it suits my attention span pretty well. Right. Um, so you like the ED better than ICU? Sometimes. Like, oh. as I get older, I'm like, it would right. be really nice to have my lions labeled, right? right. It would be really nice to <laughs> manage this. Right. Um, but, uh, you know. I don't know if you've ever been officially diagnosed, but do you think you have ADD, ADHD? No, I absolutely no? don't. Right. I just do you think haven't. it's just our personalities as nurses then? I think it can be. I, I think it would be really interesting to look at a number of sort of personality traits of to, you know, what suits people to different specialties. I think we all intuitively have some idea, but it would be really interesting to quantify that. Right. Cause I love the ED. I was a trauma issue nurse for a long time. And then I never really thought about the ED cause I was a combat medic. I spent nine years as a combat medic. And then people always ask me, well, how come you don't go back to the ED? I'm like, I had enough of that stuff. You know, I like the yeah. nice slow pace. I only got two patients. Right. But then I took a travel assignment, got back to the ED, and I got bit by the bug again. I haven't left since. So Yeah, it's like a bad boyfriend. It is. I tell it's an abusive relationship. So I love this about you because this is on your, what I thought was a spoof profile. It says, teach nurses how not to kill people. Now, I will say this before I finish reading this. You hurt my feelings this morning. I had a little meltdown and cried a little bit. Because you already have another Kevin in your life, and I don't appreciate that. How would you, Kevin McFarlane, I son do. of a bitch? 
I know, but it's okay. So, <laughs> yeah, Kevin and I are we're podcast buddies. <laughs> I know, I love it. He, well, he's the one who taught me how to do this. So, oh, amazing. Right, yeah. So it says you have on there teach nurses how not to kill people. So, can you elaborate on that? Because I love that. Yeah, well, that's the job, right? So, I've been teaching since 2003 in, in various adjuncts or full time right. academic positions. And I think what's really important for new nurses, like of any, stripe right is to understand like nursing is a deeply ethical endeavor right and it doesn't have to be a calling and it doesn't have to be this like religious moment or anything right. but, like the job is you protect people right you right. are the firewall between your patients and death so to, to teach nurses how to approach patient care in a way that minimizes and mitigates cognitive errors that lead to you know, patient, that poor patient outcomes, right? right? And up to and including death. So things like, you know, the idea of you have to keep following the line of inquiry, right? Like you can't just decide what it is at first, you know, with your eyeballs, right? right. We have a, we can have a pretty good idea, but we know that like experience doesn't equal expertise, right? right. You could be doing it wrong for 30 years. We see that all the time. Wait. Say it one more time what you just said. Experience does not equal expertise. Yeah, but keep going. You could and be we doing all know what? people who've been 30 doing years and you could still be doing right. People do that all the time. They say, well, you know, that's the way we've always done it. And I'm like, yeah, but is that the damn right way? Like, Right, exactly. And so craziness. as a researcher, I become really obnoxious in that way. I like know? it, though. We need you. Well, how right. do you know it works? Right? Like, right? That's my favorite question. And that's the one that gets me kicked out of parties. <laughs> how do you know that works? But I like that. It's a valid question because if we're not changing, medicine changes it all the time. So if we're not questioning it, right. I mean, right. But so I that's think... kind of the impetus for the, the how not to kill your patient oh. podcast, right? Was like, oh. we needed to give people little truth bombs right. <laughs> you know, that I they like could that, though. on their way to work. <laughs> but I like that though. It's true though. All right. Mm -hmm. So what is the primary focus of your research at the Institute for Emergency Nursing Research? Yeah, we don't have institutes anymore. It's just the, the emergency nursing research department. Oh, um, it's not called that anymore? No, it's not called. It hasn't been called that for like five years. I know. Oh, it's on your LinkedIn profile. I know. You see how technologically competent I am. <laughs> Sorry, right. I love it. So it's just called emergency nurse research. Yep. All right. That's Fair it. enough. What is our what, primary focus? What do we study? Yeah. So what it kind of goes back to this idea of how the environment affects nurses' ability to function fully. Right. So we right now we're doing, I mean, I, I just, I wrote like eight papers over Christmas it's okay. break. It's like nuts. Listen we, to her eight papers over Christmas break. I know it's terrible. <laughs> That's what I do when I don't have any meetings. I write, um, but we're doing right now. We have papers out there about frailty, you know, how emergency nurses understand frailty, like what's their conceptual understanding and when would they use like a frailty tool we have stuff out there about risks to people doing research in the emergency department we have a paper out about a new trauma course a delphi study about you know what should go into a, an advanced trauma course well uh, i would ask you a question but i don't want to cause trouble but i do have a really serious question that yeah, maybe sure. you'll answer off air but i don't want to get in trouble Oh, okay. Because, <laughs> you know, we just, well, because something just happened. Because I teach TNCC and I sit on the committee, you know, I do things on the backside of the ENA yep. where I sit on all these committees because I like to learn. It helps me learn and stuff. But 
with the new ninth edition TNCC, I don't know if you know our relationship that we had with somebody for 30 years is over. Mm. Did you not know that? Well, I don't, uh, I, that's not really the my part right. of my job. So I got I you, but that's why I was, I want to know what happened to that relationship and what is it that we did that caused them to break up with us? But nobody will answer that damn question. I'm afraid I can't answer your question either because I, that's I, all right, but really at least you'll know now what I'm talking about. All right, anyway, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. So you said frailty, risking the ED. Yeah. Uh, what else are you doing? Trauma. Advanced trauma. So is it a new class that we're going to be bringing out? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's nice. Charge nurses, charge nurse curriculum. I like that because we don't, that's one of my big pet peeves is that we have charge nurses and managers, but they never get training. They just exactly get right. thrown in there and they don't know how to lead and shit. Right. So and we did just a couple flail. of studies. Yep. Yeah, they flail around and. What should be in there and how we should teach it and how we should evaluate it. So that paper, I hope, will come out soon. We just did a paper on freestanding emergency departments. Right. So what we're really looking at is like, what are the conditions under which emergency nurses need to function? How does that impact the way they're able to take care of patients? And how do we make that better? So one of the things that I fell in love with you about, because I got to be a part of your research, was the OB emergencies in the ED. Oh, yeah. You were part of that, right? The one that was with, I don't know if I'm saying it right, is it A1? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in conjunction with A1. It was the big, yeah, long yeah, class. Yeah, we're that up right now. Yeah. Yeah, so I love that because I think that's our weakness in the ED because, you know, we have this magic number where a patient comes in, they're 20 weeks, and we send them upstairs and we just ignore them. Yeah. But we're and nurses. We, how come How come yeah. we can't take care of these And if you don't have patients? it upstairs, they're yours. Right. Well, yeah. what if they can't go upstairs because upstairs is busy and full and, you know, backlogged like we are. So we're nurses. Why can't we learn how to do this? Right. So that's why I really like that. I really like that program. Yeah, it was hugely so. important because there are, and I think where you are is is an obstetric desert. Or Yes, or we are. We're in the OB desert. That's right. That's why I'm passionate about it. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So I think about four, I'm going to say about 400 nurses took that course. So we're Would evaluating live? kind of what When's that you're coming is. out live to everybody. Yeah, right. Well, it's a very expensive course. We got grant I know. Money. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. I saw it. And I was like, "Ooh, I'm lucky." Yeah, it was good. So, let me ask you this: How does your research work translate into actionable improvements in practice in emergency nursing? Yeah, well, so I think the benefit of being situated at the ENA allows that knowledge to be translated much faster, potentially. So, you know, the research that we did on the trauma course, right, that's trend, that's being built right now. The charge nurse study that's being built, you know, or will be built once the paper's published. We're doing some stuff around triage, competency verification, right? Again, right, right. research piece that translates into an actual thing. Point of pride, a study that I did with a couple of collaborators, including my daughter, who's an anthropologist. Oh, look at that. That's um, nice. Was published in the gen. In, it was about how emergency nurses in states with abortion bans navigate obstetric emergencies right, right. That through UMass. But that study is cited in the National Council of State Boards of Nursing report. That's nice. I like that. And I was like, that's, yeah, that's good. Yes! <laughs> like, yeah. Well, finally. We got to put you on a bus to take you somewhere else so you can get taken care of. <laughs> right. That's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. But, but yeah, so there's like, there are certain things that are like really immediate impact. And part of the reason that I, I have had this really great job, right, 
is that there's not a lot of emergency departments situated researchers. Right. Because there's not. it's chaotic right. and it's crazy. And like, you can't do a randomized controlled trial, right. right? So the space is kind of empty, right? It's like crickets. You're like a unicorn, right. So the, the group of people that I write with and work with the advisory council are all volunteers, you know, just like the work that you do when you're working with ENA. But they're probably two thirds of like the people who are actively doing ED centered situated research in the country. So like we have this really prolific group of really smart people and we can kind of bang through a lot of problems. I got you. Um, but do you do the research at their facilities? Like no. where, what facilities do you go to to get the data and the research? Well, here, yeah. So that's the challenge as we move toward, you know, more implementation type of studies. So because yeah, facilities are very resistant to yes, change. Yes, they are. Yes. You'd be surprised. Um, oh, no, I'm not because I live in the Central Valley here and they do not. For some reason, I try to get the ENA kind of classes into these hospitals and they're very resistant. I'm not sure why. I don't know how to. It's like nobody wants to give data and they don't understand how research studies work and how we anonymize data and how we report out data in aggregate ways, right? So that we would not name an institution. We would, you know, there's a lot of ways that you don't call people out, right? Like we just, we're publishing a study on triage recognition of preeclampsia. Right, right, right. And of course, what we're finding is that we're terrible at it. We miss it 80% yes. of the time, yeah. right? So this goes back to your, your thing, right? But to get that data, we have to completely anonymize it. We have to just give basic, you know, geographic regions, right? Right. But it's, I would argue that it is no different. We did a very similar study through ENA at, on the East Coast at five hospitals on the East Coast and found essentially the same thing. Same thing, so, right. Yeah. So, well, I, I mean, think it's because we, we dismiss OB, like I said, we just dismiss because I, I know I'm dumbing it down, but I use one thing from the class I learned is like a lady comes in 12 weeks post delivery, her blood pressure is 140 over 90. What are we going to do? And as an ED nurse, I asked this to almost all my ED colleagues. And what do you think most of them say? Nothing. Ah, it's okay. We're going to send. fine. Right. Yeah. Because we don't, you know, and I didn't know that it was a sign of pre, right? I didn't know that. I was like, oh, sure. Isn't ESI too? <laughs> right. See, <laughs> okay. But that's another issue is so ESI is a big issue because, you know, I don't get engaged in it, but I don't know if you know on the ENA when you are like an instructor or whatever, you're invited to this ENA Connect and uh -huh. all these people are posting their problems and stuff. And so many people ask about ESI triage, ESI this. I'm like, we have a class that was developed by probably you and, or at least tweaked by you and nobody uses it. Where you have all these different people using these different things. We're not consistent on the same sheet of music. That's why there's get a, that. a handbook, the, the handbook <clears throat> version five came out about a year why ago. Why don't people use it then? How come because emergency departments are so inept that the managers won't like go there and use it. I guarantee well, that most managers people, probably people have no idea how to look things up and that they do it or just lazy. This is a re if you can find the best sushi restaurant in Missoula, Montana, <laughs> you can find the ESI handbook. Right. I agree with that. It's true. I'm gonna start using that. I'm stealing that. <laughs> we have the collected knowledge of humanity in a phone like well, I tell people if I would have had the internet as a, a 10 or 12 year old Kevin, I probably would have been a Bill Gates by now because <laughs> I love the internet though, because I can find anything I want. I can ask questions. I'm not saying everything on the internet is true, but 
at least it gets me asking questions. I ain't find people like you who know the answers or at least guide me in the right direction. So, all right. So what are some common mistakes or misunderstandings about immersion nursing and how they can be addressed? Well, I think in, in, <laughs> wait, wait, I gave you these questions. You don't remember that? <laughs> that's broad. Um, <laughs> I did. It is. It is. It's broad. Well, I think the big, the big challenge is the way that we educate nurses. It's changing a little bit because the NCLEX is more case study based now. Right. And so it's much harder to pass if you're just like memorizing it like high school French. Right. Right. So, so that's a step in the right direction. I think that, I think that nursing programs that, and this really all starts with pre-licensure education, right? Like we have to teach this as a cognitive process, not as a list a of numbers game, right? There has to be much more concerted training in clinical judgment and the process, the diagnostic process, right? I think that people who teach in schools of nursing should have to maintain a clinical practice. I think that the way, even when I tell my students, when I was in nursing school in the 90s, a patient who was admitted for pneumonia was in the hospital for seven days, right? right? right. And the care plan went something like this. Day one, sit them up in bed. Day two, help them sit in a chair. Like you're moving them closer to the door every day. But it was a seven-day course, right? right? And now you have to be nearly dead, first right. of all, to be admitted to the hospital. Like the right. level of acuity is completely different than it was even 15 years ago. Right. And I think that anybody who hasn't touched a patient in more than five years really doesn't understand that. As that's why I went back to the bedside because I didn't want to become irrelevant. Right. That's yeah. That's right. why I kind of dip in and out of, uh, right. out of the bedside as well. I think that's a big part of it. Like people are much, much sicker. I think teaching nurses really explicitly, there's this idea that like, oh, they'll get it right? Eventually. But they don't, right, no, no, but no. They, you have to right. explicitly teach this. When I ask my students, like, so what would you do in this situation? And they're like, I would advocate for my patient. I'd be like, well, what exactly does that mean? Like, oh. write it out for me. All what right. is that? That's good. Mean? I like that like, idea. All right. I don't know. Right. <laughs> so, so we toss these words around as like part of nursing practice, but we really are not giving people a good idea of what that actually means. And right. often, you know, I'm like, look, if this is something you don't feel able to do like bail now right like, right you're only a semester in you know? <laughs> go you know be a florist <laughs> go do something that makes you happy and even if you don't like people the thing is nursing is so huge right right even if you don't like people you can get a job at nursing right like right. the intellect be a researcher you right? can be a researcher if you don't like people yeah exactly <laughs> I'm, a I'm an unbelievable introvert right so are you really i don't believe that i am i go to conference and i'm like I have to get back to my room and take a nap, right? Like I'm, I work from home. I've worked from home for like 15 years. Right? No, I agree. I'm good at talking to people, but I really don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. And people oh. don't believe that. I feel like I'm an introvert too, because I can stand up in front of a room like you and talk, but it makes me uncomfortable. Like I really get nauseous inside. Oh, I, I don't. I like, I was in theater for years. So like oh. this is performance <laughs> art to me, right? But it's still kind of exhausting. It so. is. That's true. Because me, I want to see that, I want to be, have a nursing profession that can work independently, not independently with our physicians, don't get me wrong, but I want us to be able to work to the maximum of our scope of practice, but we don't. Right. We you, don't. Why, and that part of that is, is our relationship with our physician colleagues who are doing kind of everything they can to, you know, make nursing a task-based 
That's what I teach. I'm like, we're still teaching, not everywhere, don't get me wrong, but we're still teaching a majority of nursing schools are still teaching task-based nursing and not evidence-based yeah, nursing. Not cool. Not cool. And like the uh, task it, it shows. To an end. It's not yeah. an end. But how do we get away from that? Why are we still teaching that? Because I just had students yesterday, and it's a pet peeve of mine, but like uh, the Foley catheters, you know, you're not supposed to inflate the balloon anymore. But nurses still teach that in school. And I'm like, it's literally in the damn book that you don't do that. I don't, do you not read the book you teach your students? Like, right. So I how do we. Similar with aspiration after IM injection. Right. Like people still do that. We haven't done that since 2000. Right. right. So why are we still teaching it? It's probably right. even because in the book, too. Because the old nurses at. So this is the answer I got. The old nurses at the hospital still. It's still in their policy. So we have to teach. I was like. Oh. We're yeah. the university. We're supposed to inform practice. Like, what are you yes. doing? You have this go backwards. Well, I tell people that. I said, if your policies are outdated like that, they're still teaching you crap that's no longer valid. I guarantee you, and I don't try to be mean, but I guarantee it's because there's a bunch of old ass nurses who've been in nursing for 30, 40 years, and they never go and read a stupid book and educate themselves, and they leave these old policies in place. <laughs> Because that's the way I, we've always done it, right? Right. That's right. And I tell the new nurses, get on the damn policy committee and make a change. You can do this. That's right. All right. So I did say this, and I know we talked about this already. So what are some recent findings you can share about OB emergencies, and how can it be implemented in the emergency department? I know oh, it's a broad yeah. question, but. All right. Yeah, this is. Take the is, highlight points that you think is most important. Okay. So first of all, we don't know anything about obstetrics, <laughs> right? Second, we're terrified by obstetrics. That's why we went to the ER, so we wouldn't have right. to deal with babies, right? Third thing, this is a population that is growing enormously, especially right. friends and neighbors. If you're in the large part of the country that has banned abortion, you right. are going to see large numbers of people who are pregnant, who do not want to be, who are being endangered by their pregnancies, right? So right. you will see a lot more pregnancy emergencies. You will see miscarriages. You will see incomplete miscarriages. You will see premature, pre-viable rupture of membranes. You will see all of those things. You will see preeclampsia. You will see cardiomyopathy, all kinds of stuff. You need to be able to recognize that immediately. And right. you need to be able to advocate for appropriate care for that patient, whatever that right. looks like where yeah. you are. You need to demand information from your administration on exactly what is going to be done for these patients, because this is where people die. Right. And in terms of like the most important findings is that, again, back to this idea that nurses are really reluctant to engage with things that they view as political. Right. right. Nursing is political. We right. are at the crossroads of patient care and state legislation. Right. We are there like you can't ignore it. So right. you have to figure out how you're going to as a group. Right. Like this is a big emergency department staff meeting with your administration. What are we doing? What are our endpoints? You know, when do we call legal? When do we just, you know, what are we going to do? Right. right. And I think that is going to be the big opening up area of emergency care is going to be OB. Yeah, because um, people don't realize what's about to hit them. Exactly. And, yeah. and it's already hitting places like Texas in Idaho, for example, right, right. Uh, the Supreme Court there has ruled that MTALA doesn't apply. How can you overrule that? Isn't that a federal law? It is a federal law, but so we how have can states the... who are violating the supremacy clause. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Right. But the thing is, a lot of these laws are written in ways that are so vague 
that it's right. really easy for everybody to be like, oh, well, we can't do anything when in fact the law may not say that. Right. But I think so, maybe administration are scared. I think administrations, managers, directors are scared or maybe incompetent to maybe even incompetent to help their staff. I so how does a staff member go to somebody who's either scared or incompetent? Or what are we going to do to change that? Right. I think the challenge there or the, the way forward is collaborative, right? Like, like they don't listen to nurses much, but they will listen to their physician groups, right? So there needs to be an alliance built if there isn't one already. Like nobody wants to lose their license. Nobody wants to kill a patient. How are right. we going to navigate this, right? This is not a case. And it's funny because I've, in the course of a couple of studies that I'm in the middle of, nurses have said to me, well, well, you know, I, I don't believe in abortion. I think it's great that they banned it. I'm like, well, that's fabulous. But what's coming into your ER is not people asking for elective abortion. Right. Right. It's people who, who have premature rupture of membranes at right. 18 weeks, right? Right. So what are we going to do about that? Right. right. And they're like, oh, I didn't right. realize that. Right. Right. That's my so, that's my whole point. Like you're you're not there during abortion. It, it's coming. It, it's but the problem I think is misconception because abortion doesn't mean that you're going and getting the baby aborted. Sometimes it's just a spontaneous abortion. It, right. It's right. coming out because the body wants to expel it because it sees it as a foreign object and what are you going to do about it and you're going to see more of it like sure. you say i mean what nurses are telling us is that patients are being sent home wait say it one more time they're being patients are being sent home and told to return if they get febrile or if they start getting chills or you know some signs of infection or sepsis because then that's we crazy that's help. incompetence and that's going to cause people to lose their license and lawsuits are going to happen absolutely why would you do that that's nuts right i right. get you yeah, I know so, you're. So I know you're preaching to, to the choir. A big, a big teaching around this. Happy yeah. to help, right? No, I um, love this. That's why. I, that's why I like it because I know that you're passionate about this. So, what is your experience and expertise? What is one piece of advice you'd like to share with all emergency room nurses? If you could give one takeaway, I know that's a big question because you got a lot of on your plate to, to yeah, talk about. I, I think emergency nurse is like the buck stops here. We're the canary in the coal mine, right? All, all the fallout from all the societal gaps shows up for right. us. And to see the work of emergency nursing not as personal, but as societal is right. really important, right? I think there's a lot of nurses out there who really think that some patients deserve their care and some don't. I was and just thinking would, that in my head. That's right. I would ask you to abandon this Calvinist approach <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and understand that you are doing the work of society. Like this is the social contract. Right. We take care of each other. If you don't feel like that's a place that you want to be, then you should go to boutique dermatology, right? right. Like you should go no, but somewhere I've... where you can judge people appropriately, right? Yeah, this I agree is with that. Place. Yeah, I agree. Because I do talk about that. So like I give my student a baby, I'm like, I'm the parent, ask me some questions, you know, and they ask me questions like, I basically tell them nothing's wrong with my baby, nothing's wrong with my baby. And they're like, well, why are you here? And I said, see, that right there means you're jaded already. I said, why do you give a shit why they're here? You're here 12 hours, you signed up for this. Who cares if they come in too soon? Who cares if they come in too late? People are people, they're gonna come in no matter what. The question is not, so why are you here? The question is, what are you concerned about? Like, right. what are you afraid of that brought you right. here today? Right. And how can I help you manage that? But we get so jaded, though. though. I, I shouldn't say we, because I don't, I love it. But people get so jaded in the ED because, you know, you get frequent flyers that come in. But I love the frequent flyers. 
You know why? Because I know them, and all I'm going to do all night long is give turkey sandwiches and cheese, and I get to talk to them, and I get to know them, and maybe I can help them and stuff. So that's, I don't understand why we're so mean, and, you know, I don't know, it's crazy. Yeah, if you're mean, and I just actually did a a podcast with the other other Kevin. Oh, um, my God. I hate you, Kevin. Sorry, on burnout, (laughs) right? And this idea that... If you're so burnt out that you can't be nice to somebody who's showing because they have nowhere else to go, right? Leave, go yeah. take a vacation, go work yeah. in outpatient, go yeah, work do, in, yeah. you know, thank you, go work yeah. in endo, right? Like go somewhere else where you're not right. harming people with your judgment, right? Well, I had the podcast recently. His name's Aaron Washburn, and he has this thing called because his mother was a nurse and she died during COVID. And so he got touched by it because he didn't know what we did, but he created this class called Empathy Prescription. Mm-hmm. How, uh, see, what was it? Mastering your emotions as nurses. Cool. He's trying to help nurses from burnout and stuff. So that's what I'm working on as well. What are the surefire signs in the ED that a nurse should be looking for concerning OB emergency? Like if you had one OB emergency that you want us to focus on, yeah. things that you don't want us to miss. Yeah, preeclampsia. Right. Attention to blood pressure. Preeclampsia and blood pressure. That's what I learned. Yeah. Yeah. Really pay attention to blood pressure because the threshold for problematic blood pressure in a person who's pregnant or recently pregnant is 140. Right. Right. And that's crazy, huh? And so you have to ask. You have to ask people is as it's appropriate, right? Do you yell it across the room? Hey, are you pregnant? No, you don't, right? (laughs) But at the appropriate time. Really right. verify because people also, depending on where you are, and this goes back to this idea of these abortion bans and obstetric deserts, people don't want to disclose necessarily right. that they're pregnant or have recently been pregnant. So right. do everybody a goddamn favor and ask them privately. So does it, when you talk about blood pressure and preeclampsia, it doesn't just have to mean you're pregnant, but it could mean that you've already delivered. How far out could it it's go potentially? Weeks. It's kind of... The outer edge. Outer right? edge, okay. But other complications like cardiomyopathy and PE can really persist like later in the postpartum course. So even as far as 12 weeks? As far as 12 weeks. Yeah, see, but people don't believe that. All right, so I, I'm going to ask you a controversial question because, you know, this is a big topic for people. Okay. How has COVID 19 pandemic affected the procedures about OB emergencies in the D? ED and what changes have you seen since COVID and that disaster? So we know right now, four years later, as more and more information comes out that COVID is a disease of vasculature, right? And so pregnancy, which is a hypercoagulable state anyway, as is COVID means that your pregnant patients are really high risk for DVTs and PEs and strokes and all kinds of stuff. That's clotting. Hang on one second. No, you're good. So that would be the big thing with COVID is that it, it, the combination of COVID and pregnancy is like really high risk for. So anybody who comes in with a recent COVID infection who's also pregnant and short of breath, like right, <laughs> the crap out of them. Right. right. Go look. I mean, like ultrasound. C- yeah, but ultrasound CT. Yeah. Would you do a CT? They're not worried about. It depends. Depends on where they are in their pregnancy. Right. You know, it's a cost benefit analysis, right? Okay. And that's not, you know, necessarily a nursing decision, but it's a nursing conversation. 
Well, you're the first person I've heard, and I don't know, maybe I'm just ignorant and I didn't read about it, but you said COVID, we know that COVID is a vasculature issue. Yeah. So is that why people are are saying they're having like SVT or yeah. cardiomyop, uh, cardio, cardio, I can't even say it. Carditis. Uh, like, yeah, yeah, thank you, pericarditis and things like that. Is that That's the relationship to it? Yeah. I mean, so this is where we're seeing, like, this is why people have different manifestations, right? So some people have pulmonary, some people have neurologic, some people have GI, right? It's all because it attacks endothelium, right? So it becomes not just the flu, right? It becomes a persistent problem for people. And And then on top of that, their comorbidities, diabetes, things like that, just aggravated and exacerbated. Immunosuppression, like the whole, it's a shit show, man. Like, I still right. don't even go grocery shopping without a mask. So. <laughs> well, I don't want that. <laughs> the, no, I know, but the, like the, I say, I probably get in trouble. But the kids at work, I call them kids because you know I'm older, and so I come in, I wear a mask all the time. And then so I had a patient the other day. She was like 71, still working, little heavy set, and I asked her, "Ma'am, are you have you been around anybody COVID? COVID? No, I had chested last week, but I still have my mask on, and I made her wear a mask." Mm-hmm. Sure shit, she was COVID positive and I come back. See, you lied to me. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you never know. And never so know. I always want to try to protect myself too. Cause I got I have uh my mother in law and father in law live with me and they're in their nineties and right. I don't want them to suffer. Yeah, my father in law's ninety five, my mother in law's eighty. They see still walking and talking. I take care of them. It's good. All right. So can you share any safety procedures that you have devised or learned over the years for emergency nurses? especially in handling OB patients? I think high index of suspicion, right? Always. Like you never want to start with, oh, they're fine and work your way up. I think being really mindful when patients say they are bleeding, like weigh those pads, weigh those chucks, right? Like really get a sense of estimated blood loss. Your patient comes in and they're bleeding and tacky, right? Get that fixed, right? And I think there's a, a really challenging overlap here. One is that you're talking about women for the most right. part and women, nobody takes women's complaints seriously to start right. with, right? right? Right, Women's pain, women's, you know, complaints of fatigue, shortness of breath. Oh, it's, it's all psychological, right? Listen to people. They are not making it up. I think right. like that, I want to put that on a t-shirt. Like nobody's trying to fool you for their right. own benefit, right? Like just listen but, to but, them. But why are we so jaded when, how come we don't listen to people? I have no idea. I think that is cultural in the ED, Mm. right? Like nobody really needs to be here. Of course they do. That's why we're here. Yeah, I just wanted to come into ED at two o'clock in the morning just just because I was lonely at home. Nobody, you know, brings four snotty little kids to the ED just because they had nothing better to do. (laughs) Like, come on. So, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna ask you this because you're you're female. Why do women wait so long to come into the ED? You know, you're half dead. You got ten hours post stroke. Yeah. You're like, I need help. I'm like, where were you a long time ago? Why do women what, wait? What, what am I doing? Like, I'm the sort of person. Like, at one point in my life, not now, but a few <laughs> years ago, I would have like before I put my head in the oven, I would have done all the laundry, folded it, put it away, right. and packed everyone's lunch for the next day. Right? It's Again, true. This is a very cultural thing for women to ignore their own needs, right? Like women, this idea that, that women are weak or whatever, like women have an incredible women are weak. high right. threshold for pain yes. and discomfort, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, they go when there's no other option. But is it cultural? 
I mean, I'm not saying it's not cultural. Is it cultural or is it in, is it innate? No, is it's it just, cultural. Is it because women are built to be mothers and because you're built to be mothers, like you take care of everybody but yourself because I don't yeah, need to take care of myself? You're conditioned to do that. That doesn't you think so? You're not born with that software. All right, all right. I'm just asking because, you know, I, you see it so much, but I, I've never been able to stay. I've been to other countries and I've lived in other countries, but no matter where I've been, women still tend to be the housemakers and the caretakers and yeah, viva la and women out, like, women out. I don't know, but women out. Num- my dude, that's not, that's not biology. <laughs> but women outnumber men. So how come you haven't taken over? Well, because we're afraid men will kill us. You'll notice that like Margaret Atwood has this great quote that says, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women oh, are afraid right. men will kill them. I got you. All right. All right. Fair enough. I got you. But you know you could do that to us in our sleep, right? Yeah, yeah. But see, we've got all these Republican governors that are trying to kill us. I know. I got you. I'm with you. The the message is clear. The message is clear. It's crazy, right? Yeah. I feel like I'm living in another world. So so, we're almost up. I'll ask you one last question. Let me see. Because I know you got to go. What kind of collaborations do you engage in with other stakeholders, hospitals, nursing schools, government, that can help facilitate positive patient outcomes? I think that we currently, I do a lot of work with external entities, right? So AWAN, ACOG, ASEP. I work with the Coalition on Psychiatric Emergencies. Oh. We work with, you know, all kinds of people for whom the ED is the overlap, right? right? And I think what we really need to start doing in addition to that is partnering with administration groups, right? Right to remind nurse leaders and hospital administrators that their hospitals don't run without nurses. Like people get admitted to the hospital for nursing care, not for doctor care. And so- Do you think they forget where they came from? Yeah, I think they do. How do we help remind them? They take all that unresolved trauma, run away from the bedside, but they take it up to the C-suite. And Mm -hmm. so managing anybody else's trauma is entirely too painful. And they're not going to do it, right? So you think they just don't give a shit? I don't know. Or do you think, think, like you said, they just got so much trauma they just hide and don't want to deal with it anymore? I think they shift their focus. Like I think there's a lot of compensation going on, but since I cannot be in their heads, I could not. No, I know that. I know, but I think that's one to me a conflict of interest. I don't think managers and directors should get bonuses by keeping the supplies down on your floor because. They focus on money instead of focus on patient care. That I don't like. That's one thing I would change. Now, you brought up a touchy subject, psych nursing. Yeah. Are you working on anything psych-wise through the yeah, ENA? Because we suck at psych patients. Yeah, well, we are working. I'm working with, again, this Coalition on Psychiatric Emergencies, which is ENA, ASEP, APA, you know, emergency psychiatry, like all kinds of people looking at a way to set up almost like a an algorithm or a flowchart. There's a lot right. of different places in the trajectory of a behavioral health patient coming into the ED where things can be mitigated or managed, right? Like the first, think about like somebody gets brought in either by law enforcement or by EMS, you've already like escalated them right. for the most part, right? Like right. is there a place there that we can do better, right? Is there right. a place when you talk about like people, especially emergency nurses being like really jaded and judgy and all that kind of stuff, right? If you treat a behavioral health patient like they're there to just piss you off. Right. You've already lost. 
you've already lost. Right. right? Like, just help them stop trying to control behavior. Right? right. Stop trying to control people. We are all control freaks. We are <laughs> trying to manage the behavior of people who are in crisis in the chaotic environment of the ED is just stupid. Right. right? Well, we don't have the experience or knowledge on how to manage that behavior. It's another thing. Six We're not psych nurses, nurses so have yeah. no education post licensure. Right. On uh, behavioral health. Right. Well, we should. So, so these. You know, and the fact that people see behavioral health patients as like, they don't belong here. They're not really an emergency. And the thing is, if you've ever known someone who's had a behavioral health crisis, like they are suffering in the right. same way that someone having a heart attack is right. suffering. So like, get it together and go get some therapy, everybody, if you really but, can't manage. But I think that it's because we don't understand it and we don't have training that we don't know how to treat it like a regular you right. know, heart attack or emergency. things like that, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. So more education there, certainly. Right. That's good. So we want to put together this, you know, process by which we can, and we do, uh, actually, we're going to do another pre-session at the ENA conference in Vegas on boarding. How do you manage right. the, yeah. you know, how do you minimize, mitigate, and manage boarding behavioral health patients? Are you going to create a class like the OB class for psych? site I, training that is not my job but i can certainly no but i mean you know i mean are we that. is that i know it's not your job but is that is, is the ena do you think the ena is going to plan on something like I that, that i help? think there's some talk about it but you know more to come i guess more put a, more put a word in their ear yeah, yeah that's good <laughs> <laughs> well i appreciate you taking your time is there anything else you'd like to share before we go and I, I know i kept you over a little bit but i really appreciate your time i thank you for what you did yeah that's nice that's nice today Give him a hug for me. It's <laughs> <laughs> nice though. It's nice though. It's good to have be taken care of though. I know. Yeah. So my wife's still home in bed. I don't get no tea. <laughs> well, it's six in the morning. It's seven in the morning. Where it's 10 o'clock. Is there anything else though you'd like to share before we depart? I really do appreciate you taking time. I don't know. I know you don't believe this, but I'm like a, a little schoolgirl giddy and stuff because I got to be with you. I love it though. Cause you know, you, you didn't have to take your time. I know you're way up there. You're, most people don't know this, but you are a very important person, especially in emergency nursing. Yes, you are. Don't lie. I know you don't like that, but it's true. But I appreciate you. It's weird. So, I know. <laughs> it's weird. So I, if I had anything to like use this platform, I would say like this is a really great job, but it is not your job to judge people. Like it's your job right. to take care of people. Like somebody told me when I was first starting out, you need to love your patients. You don't need to take them home. But you need to right. take care of them while you're there. Yeah, that's and right. So that's what you should do. I appreciate that because I do. I sing to them. I hug them. I kiss them. And people think I'm crazy. But I do. I love it. It makes them feel good. There's nobody there loving them. So what, that's our job. So, yep. All right, Doc. I appreciate you. I hope you have a great day. Have a good weekend. Sure. And I don't know who it was, but give her a hug and a kiss. And thank you for <laughs> letting her come and see me on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Doc, you have a great day. All right, see you later. All right, thank you. I appreciate you. Don't miss out. Engage with us weekly. Share your thoughts. And let's transform the nursing landscape together.